Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. As has been demonstrated many times recently, there are many people in our prisons today serving time for crimes they did not commit. This has not happened by accident. We no longer abide by the maxim, it is better that 99 people go free than to tragically convict one innocent person. That's what they did to us. They took young kids, they were easy to do, we were easy to throw away, and they just took and they throw us away. And now society won't, won't try to correct the problem. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast. Last episode, we introduced you to four men who were sent to prison under questionable circumstances. All four were arrested and convicted of violent crimes. All four cases had little or dubious evidence. All four were victimized by the testimony of a fraudulent dog handler, a man whose so-called, quote, expert testimony was already under investigation elsewhere and whose crumbling reputation was widely known. All four had their fates sealed by the testimony of jailhouse informants, or snitches, who saw their charges dropped or reduced in exchange for their testimony. Though agreements made with prosecutors were denied in court and only revealed later on. The other common denominator in these cases is a man by the name of Dean Moxley, a tough prosecutor who rode these convictions and many others to a seat on the bench as a circuit judge in the 18th Judicial Circuit, where he served until his recent retirement. Moxley has never agreed to an interview with me. He also has never apologized or been held accountable for putting innocent men in prison. He personally prosecuted Juan Ramos, Gary Bennett, and Wilton Dedge, and was the supervising attorney for William Dillon's trial, as you will later hear. We're going to start with the story of Wilton Dedge, who was only 20 years old when his world came crumbling down all around him. Let me help you picture Wilton today. He's 55 years old, with a long ponytail that dangles down from the ever-present ball cap he wears. He sports a rangy Fu Manchu mustache, and walks with a terrible limp from a series of bike accidents that he's suffered since being released. He maintains a very serious demeanor, and he holds nothing back when he speaks. I don't know if it's because I already know his tragic story, but his eyes look tired, wounded, as if they are, I don't know, his last line of defense, the only barricade keeping the pain bottled inside. I asked him if the pain is still there, and what it's been like to try and reacclimate himself to society. I mean, people just don't get it. That we're still the young kids that they locked up, but we're in old bodies and we got more responsibility. Went from basically zero responsibility in prison to living a life, paying bills and worried about insurance. And, you know, people have no clue. You can't just throw a person into a full responsibility. So it's, it's taken a while to adapt. And, you know, put up with different people, different attitudes. And, you know, what about, 
technology? I mean, like, was that just mind-boggling when you came out about all the advancements in 20 years? And well, I'd never had a cell phone until I believe it was 2004 or five, And, yeah, used to, you had to go home to use a phone or find a pay phone or wasn't really computers, laptops, smartphones. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out the computer thing. But when his sad story began, he had only turned 20 years old a month before. It was December 8th, 1981, and something horrible was about to happen to a 17-year-old Canaveral Grove girl that would change her life and Wilton's forever. It's our policy not to name the victims of sexual assault, and especially so in this case when the victim was a minor. The teenager, a cosmetology student, returned home after a job search. The home was empty. Her father, sister, and stepmom were all out. She went to her bedroom and began to change her clothes. Meanwhile, 47 miles away, Dent was working on a car transmission at a shop in New Smyrna Beach in the next county north from Brevard. A 20-year-old high school dropout who lived with his parents in Port St. John, Wilton says he was still trying to find his way. He spent most of his time surfing and skating and, of course, working on his motorcycle. But back to that Canaveral Grove's house and that 17-year-old girl. She hears a sound in the doorway and turns to see a man wielding a razor knife. She would later describe him as being over six feet tall and 200 pounds. The man cut her clothes off and raped her twice, including anally. He also slashed at her with a razor, cutting her a total of 65 times on her face and body. The attack lasted 45 minutes and ended when he punched her in the face and stole the money that was in her purse. She called her boyfriend, who took her to the hospital, where they met with the police. She told them the man had long blonde hair and a receding hairline. Investigators found two pubic hairs at the scene and semen. This was in the days before DNA testing, and so the semen was kind of useless. But thankfully, it was preserved. A few days later, the victim and her sister went to a nearby Jiffy Mart, and she thought she recognized her attacker in the store. She didn't call police, but returned to the store a few days later with her sister, and the man was there again. This time, she did call police, and said the assailant's name was Walter Dedge. That's Wilton's brother. But the victim's sister, after being shown a photo by police of Walter Dedge, said it was Wilton and not Walter whom they had seen at the store. This prompted a photo lineup, and the victim identified Wilton Dedge's picture. One brother was released, and the other, Wilton, arrested. Oh, and I forgot to mention one teeny tiny detail. Wilton Dedge? Well, he doesn't really quite fit the victim's initial description of her attacker. The victim in this case, and over the years now, you know, it has been learned that eyewitness testimony is very unreliable because you're being, you know, like you're under stress, you're being attacked, you don't mm -hmm. really know what, what, you know. But she claimed, uh, well, she said the person who raped her was over six feet tall, about right. 200 pounds or so. and 180 to 200 pounds, right. And even if you're wearing heels, what are you, like about five? I'm less than five, six, and at that time I weighed about 130 pounds. Right. Maybe. And now you're like about, like about 140. Mm, <laughs> <now> I wish. <laughs> In fact, former prosecutor Sam Bardwell said he sat in to watch some of Wilton's trial and said you couldn't find someone with more distinct features. If you, if you ever saw what Wilton Dedge looked like, he was so distinctive of a man that he could 
you would know him anywhere. I saw him 20 years later and I recognize him. Well, when I saw him, he was a muscular man. And you know what I thought he was? A miniature Fabio. He had long tresses. And I thought to him, how horrible it must be to be such a fine looking specimen, but have to shop in, in the boys section. But when I saw him and I realized that, wait a minute, once you saw him, you know, you'd never forget him. And then I recall the testimony of the woman and her notion that he was six foot tall. So the case against him was really, really rotten. That's a former prosecutor saying that. The case seemed so rotten that even Dej initially wasn't that worried. And like I say, when I, when I first learned about all this, I didn't take it seriously. I was a kid and I thought, okay, I'm innocent. I know that I'm going to get proven innocent. You know, I'm not worried about it. But, yeah, it kind of opened my eyes up. But that's how I was brought up. My mom and dad believe in a system. Now they don't. Well, I was brought up to respect police officers. And, and you know, most of them are good. But you got, you got bad people in everything. There are bad people in everything. There is no doubt about that. So here's what prosecutors had in the case against accused 20-year-old rapist Wilton Dedge. An eyewitness, the victim, who described a very different-looking attacker initially, but then ID'd Dedge in a lineup later. You also had those two brown blonde pubic hairs recovered from the scene that prosecutors said absolutely belonged to the rapist. The rape victim said she and her sister were the only two people to have ever laid on her bed, besides the rapist. During the trial, the state would produce a witness to say that the hairs appeared to be from Wilton Dedge. What the hair analyst, David Jernigan, actually said was that he could not exclude Wilton from being the source of those hairs. But by the time closing arguments came around, prosecutor Dean Moxley was telling the jury that it was certain the hairs belonged to Dedge. And so to bolster a weak case, the state called in John Preston, Yes, that guy. If you've listened to season one of Murder on the Space Coast, you know what kind of wreckage this lying fraud left in his wake. Preston, as you recall, was a former Pennsylvania state trooper who went around the country testifying as an expert in dog tracking and scent detection in hundreds of cases in places like Arizona, Ohio, New York, Puerto Rico, and of course, Florida. He was later exposed for what he was, a total fraud. In fact, the Arizona Supreme Court called him a charlatan and a fraud and reversed the cases he worked on. I've seen videos of him supposedly working his dog on a trail. He actually kicks the dog in the rear to make it move in the direction he wants it to follow. The sad thing is that even as John Preston was being called in as an expert witness on the Wilton Dedge case, there already were some prosecutors in the state attorney's office who thought Preston and his dog act were not what they appeared to be. Sam Bardwell was already skeptical of the dog's so-called abilities when he found him in the office of one of his colleagues. My father owned hunting dogs and I've hunted with dogs and tried to get him on the scent and I had some fine animals. And so, you know, his answer was, this is a finder hunt. Well, I go over to where I knew the dog to be. It was in Michael Hunt's office. 
the dog was held on a leash and it was restrained by the leg of a metal desk. As I approached to see the dog, I could smell the dog. And I thought, you know, people like to have a clean dog. Yeah. And, you know, here is his bread and butter. And I knew then that this man was not a, a dog man. You know, he'd want a clean dog. He would be proud of his dog. And so then I look at the dog, and I expected the dog to be vigilant, from what I could understand. The dog was docile, and almost like he was been a whipped dog. And so Preston is called in to do a scent track and a scent detection lineup. Of course, before any of that could take place, Preston and his dog would need something with Wilton's scent on it. So, a few months before his May 1982 trial was set to begin, Dedge was taken from the county jail to the courthouse for a routine pre-trial hearing. Accompanied by court officers, he washed his hands in the restroom and dried them on paper towels. One of those officers took the paper towels, making sure to only hold the corners, and placed it in a paper bag from the coffee shop in the building. That paper towel would be just what John Preston needed to do his preposterous track and scent lineup, which involved the dog, or rather Preston leading the dog, to sniff that paper towel with Dedge's scent on it, and then pick out the victim's bloody sheet among four perfectly clean ones for a supposed link between Dedge and the crime. Sound familiar? It should if you've listened to season one. Remember, in Gary Bennett's case, Preston's dog was presented with a lineup that consisted of a bloody pair of shears and several brand new pairs of children's scissors. Accompanied by Prosecutor Dean Moxley in the Dedge case, John Preston and his dog, Harass 2, that's his dog's name, identified several key areas in the victim's home after scenting on the paper towel Dedge had used. It didn't matter that it was more than three months since the attack took place. Yeah, you heard that right more than three months later. So the trial starts and prosecutors have an eyewitness who give an initial description of her attacker that differs dramatically from the man, Wilton Dedge, on trial. Prosecutors have pubic hairs that may or may not belong to Dedge. And they have Preston's testimony. Dedge, though, was feeling confident. So confident that his family let a family friend, who was also an attorney, handle the case. Why so confident? Well, he had an alibi. Six alibis, to be exact. Six co-workers showed up and took the stand to say he had been working all day at that transmission shop in New Smyrna Beach and that there was no way he would be able to have done this. That, says Bardwell, seemed to give Dedge an unbeatable alibi because unless all six people were lying, then you'd have to believe that Dedge drove his motorcycle 120 miles an hour back to Brevard, raped the girl, and drove back to work without being detected. And I'm sitting there not knowing anything about the case, except a little rumor here, and I didn't read the case reports. But I realized this is a really crummy case. It's, it really sucks. Uh, uh, Wilton Dedge, he had an airtight alibi. And you had to believe that he drove his 440 Kawasaki at 120 miles an hour and had the dog. And the dog not only 
place him at the scene. It, it said, well, he lurked here and then did his deed here. But remember, jurors, the public in general, are brought up to believe that prosecutors and police would not lie. And so by closing arguments, the pubic hair that an expert testified he could not exclude Wilton Dedges being the owner was now being called an exact match by Moxley. An exact match? Add that to the victim's identification of Dedge and John Preston, and, well, Wilton took the stand in his own defense, but the damage was done. The jury had heard from the dog handler, the victim herself, and an expert about pubic hair. The jury was only out for four hours before coming back and pronouncing their guilty verdict. Wilton Dedge was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Basically, they found me and they built a case around me. Not facts, but they built their evidence to make it look like me, like the, the hair analysis, which turned out to be a real bad thing to use to convict somebody. Uh, they've already proven that the most they could have done was say that I was a white male with blonde hair. Extent. That was 100,000 people in Bavard County alone. And, you know, if you watch Moxley's trial in the first trial, he manipulated evidence going from a possibility to a fact, you know, a known fact, and he just twisted the evidence. Wilton's parents were incredulous. They couldn't believe the jury would buy John Preston's testimony. So they took out a second mortgage on their home and hired a top-notch attorney from Orlando to handle the appeal. His name is Mark Horowitz. I recently caught up with Mark on the telephone. Dedge's parents came to me after he had been convicted, asked for me to handle the appeal. I, so there was, a, there was a conviction. I did handle that appeal, and based upon uh, testimony of Preston, which was objected to, the 5th District Court of Appeals reversed the conviction and sent it back for trial. Right, so then I agreed to try the case upon retrial. So here you are, you're in prison for about two years or like a year and a half, and you win the appeal. So you must be thinking, okay, well, thank God, uh, this is all going to get straightened out. I thought I was going home. Yeah. I really thought I was going home. I was happy. I was ready to go. So, in January of 1984, the same month, by the way, that Gary Bennett was convicted of the death of Helen Nardi and sentenced to life in prison, Wilton Dedge was loaded onto a prison van heading back to Brevard County for a bond hearing. Maybe he would be able to get out and stay with his family while waiting for his August trial to begin. His attorney, Mark Harwitz, told him not to speak with anyone, and Wilton said he followed instructions. But here is one of those moments that gets really, really sketchy. Knowing that by now, Preston's credibility had really taken a hit, the state needed something more. So somehow, their ultimate secret weapon a murderer, child rapist, car thief, and drug smuggler by the name of Clarence Sackey, who had become a star witness over the years for, yep, you guessed it, prosecutor John Dean Moxley, suddenly appeared in the van with Dedge on his way back to Brevard. Sackey had already testified in a few other cases, including against serial killer Gerald Stano. And on your way back to Brevard County, I mean, everybody knows the story by now, but you get on a van right. to come back. And you get on, and um, I guess that was was he already on the van, or did he get no, on later on? No, there was a there was a van full of, full of people, some of them going the same place I was going, and we stopped in some 
small town after two hours or more. They took everybody off the van and then they put Zachy on the van. And then we rode around for another two, three hours before we got to Bavar County. Wow. So it, it, it looks like a setup because some of the people that were on the van were going the same place I was going. And so they went off. And, and right. But and their just, van showed up the same time mine did. So why switch all them people? And, uh, well, I mean, obviously it's because. Well, we it know was a, why. Right. It was, I mean, he was, you know, he was placed there. Obviously. I mean, it's just, but, uh, and so, well, he said that you had confessed to this whole, you know, sordid crime to him. Right. Right. And I'm thinking, why would somebody who was going back for their retrial because they just wanted an appeal, who's innocent, or you know, who's claiming to be innocent, why right. would they ever tell a stranger their story, right? So, I mean, what really happened on that van, Will? Oh, well, like I say, you're on there for hours. He was sick for a good part of the time. And even the officer who was trained to listen for anybody talking about escape, because Zach said I was going to escape to all kinds of crazy things. He said, no, there was none of that. And we probably talked the whole three hours we were together, maybe 30 minutes, you know, because we both slept and he was sick, but he, he kept trying to push and it's like, I'm going back on an appeal, what's, you know, but he ended up knowing more than I knew about my own case. He knew more hard facts than I had no clue about. And it just, it was, somebody had to tell him because he knew stuff I didn't know. It, it was pure and simple a setup. According to court records, Moxley said that Zachy's son called him at home that night to tell him Dej had confessed to his father. So Zachy, who killed the brother of an assistant state attorney and who instructed his son to make the call, has Prosecutor Dean Moxley's home phone number? Wow. <laughs> wow. Moxley would later testify about it because by the time the second trial rolled around, Moxley was the chief prosecutor handling primarily murder cases. He let Chris White and Wayne Holmes handle the Wilton Dedge retrial. Moxley testified that Zachy had contacted him at his home through his son and that he wasn't asking for anything in exchange for his testimony. Zachy said he was doing this because he hated anyone who hurt women. I'm going to repeat this because it becomes important later. Zachy said he didn't ask for anything for his testimony. He felt compelled to do it because he hated anyone who hurt women. For Wilton, the shock and realization that he was being set up came the morning after the van ride that found him suspiciously and mysteriously alone with Zachy for about three hours. And so Zachy testifies, how shocked were you to learn that he was going to be testifying in your case against you? Well, I found out the next morning when I went to arraignment and he was sitting there. And he just got up and like I said, I... We talked for a couple of minutes, but this guy, he knew so much about my case. I mean, facts that I didn't even know concerning evidence. And it's like, there's no way unless Moxie told him or Chris White or Wayne Holmes, I'm not sure which, but there's no way he could have known what he knew. No way. And so on the van, was it just like small talk basically? Or yeah, was it was basically prison talk where you ask, you know, where are you coming from? How's the camp? Uh, you know, it's just chain gang gossip basically yeah. Yeah. so you know other than that nothing come up other than i was going back on appeal 
supposedly he was going back on appeal, which he was going back to testify against somebody else, from what I understand. The testimony of Clarence Albert Zaki would prove critical, because Wilton's attorney did a masterful job attacking Preston. He caught him in one lie after another and basically exposed him as a fraud to the jury. Ironically, Preston was being discussed in the courtroom right down the hall in front of Judge Gil Agashorn, who only recently had put the dog handler to a test, one he would fail miserably. His appearance at the Dedge trial would be the last bit of poison he would leave in Brevard County. Now, and he flunked the test. I hired uh, dog training experts who said he was, you know, he was full of shit. He was just... Right. I, I learned that he would say whatever he needed to say when he testified. Yeah. I'll give you one example that stands out in my mind. <clears throat> so I knew I, I was going to cross-examine him on contamination. He's got the sheet from the bed, and what they do is they come in, they put, they get four sheets out of the jail, and then they put the, the sheets from the victim's bed, which is polka dot, not plain white. <laughs> and then he brings over the dog, and he has the dog sniff into a paper bag that contains hand towels that the cops had Wilton wipe his hands on. And he marches the dog around the five piles of sheets, and he says the dog alerts to the scent of Wilton on the sheets from the victim's bed. Mm. So, and I'm cross-examining him. I said, well, did you know that the, the sheet from the victim's bed was kept in the sheriff's evidence locker room? Yeah. Did you know that sitting right next to it was the paper bag with the, the supposed known scent of Wilton? Isn't that contamination? And this is, so I'm setting him up for a beating on this, right? Sure. He's, oh, no, 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 no. It's not because human scent will not travel through the paper bag, okay? So then I whip out his testimony in another case where he talks about human scent passing through the leather soles of a shoe, right? I mean, so that's clearly, he, he is, you know, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, he, clearly he's lying. And, but, and there were other examples of that. It hardly mattered, because now... It was time for the jury to hear the testimony of a murderer, a professional snitch named Clarence Zaki, who knew details about the case that very few were privy to. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast. He was just an evil person, but he was smart. He was real smart. When the lights go out and you're there alone, you you can't do nothing but think about it. You know, you, you're trying to hold on to hope, but, you know, you, you file a motion, they turn it down. They file them, and then after a while, you're like, well, just tell me when it happens. You know, just tell me yes or no. I don't want to think about it. You know, it's because you got to live inside or out, whether you're innocent or guilty. You can't live outside and be inside. You'll go crazy. I've seen it before. I've seen many guys that couldn't handle it, and they were guilty. <laughs> so... You know, just imagine you shouldn't be there. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres. And you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. 
Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.